Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. The population of the United States looks a lot different than it did in 2012, the last time Americans voted in a president. Latino voters are now making up 12% of total eligible voters this November, more than 27 million voters, according to Pew Research Center. Today, where we live, we look at the Latino vote. Who are the new voters among them? What issues matter to them? We'll hear from Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latino USA, and we'll talk with two young Connecticut voters with Latino roots as well. The nation's demographics have changed over the last four years. Have the major party candidates paid enough attention to the issues that matter to Latinos this campaign season? And later, we'll shift to a question many Americans may not be paying attention to, and that is a Donald Trump presidency better for the Arab world? Hundreds of young people from Arab nations have weighed in on that question over the last few weeks. We'll hear about what they had to say via an online and TV debate forum called the Monothera Initiative. That's coming up later in the show. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Joining me on the phone now is Maria Hinojosa, an award-winning journalist and host and executive producer of NPR's Latino USA. Thanks for joining the show, Maria. It's great to be with you. So you've been covering the Latino community, among other minorities in the United States, for years. How do you see this election season different from uh, past elections? Well, there's, <laughs> it's like none other, right? <laughs> We've never seen anything like this. Um, but what we don't know and what we're all waiting to see, in particular in terms of Latino voters, is how much is this going to impact their turnout? Um, is it going to motivate them? Are they going to be turned off? Will it be a vote for Hillary? Will it be a vote against Donald Trump? Um, and there are so many variations. So I think one of the one of the big takeaways, and we've I've been saying this for years, of course, is to understand the complexity of the Latino voter. The Latino voter in Connecticut is complex in and of itself. You have Puerto Ricans who have been in um, Connecticut for for decades, right? But they are born American citizens. You have new arrivals into smaller towns. Maybe they're already second generation. Um, and their interests might be a little bit different than Puerto Rican voters. So we as a country need to really understand that Latino voters are not one thing. We are multiple, um, multiple things, multiple interests, multiple motivations. And one of the, the groups, Lucy, that I'm most fascinated by are the, you know, anywhere from 13 to at a high point, maybe 25 percent. That's very high of Latino, Latina voters who, who support Donald Trump. Mm. So that is an, a part of the electorate that I am fascinated by, trying to understand what's motivating them. So um, a lot of interest, a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of attention, and now expectation. Will Latino, Latina voters um, come out to vote? There are about 27 eligible uh, Latino, 27 million rather, eligible Latino voters uh, this upcoming election. You mentioned, you know, turnout, who's going to come out. Let's talk about the, the new voters among the Latino population, the millennials. 
Right. So right now, millennials make up um, almost half of um, of all eligible uh, Latino voters in 2016, and millennials make up a larger share among Latino eligible voters than any other group in 2016. So that's like, whoa. And when I think about that, um, I actually have to make it somewhat personal because I have two kids who are going to vote for the first time um, in the presidential election. They are Latino millennials. And I'm watching how they're kind of approaching the election and their engagement. And, um, and of course, I'm also a professor here in Chicago, where I am right now, six months out of the year. So I've been watching my own students, the majority of whom are, are Latino, and kind of their political engagement. A lot of my students said, you know, I never considered myself political. And now that's all I want to talk about. That's all I'm doing. A lot of my students over the spring were feeling the burn for Bernie Sanders, saying that they would never vote for Hillary Clinton. Many of those students are actively engaged with electoral politics and saying they are absolutely going to turn out and that they will vote for Hillary Clinton. So, um, again, in understanding the Latino, Latina, or what many young people call the Latinx community, um, it's a changing, vibrant, dynamic community. Many of these young Latinos and Latinas really see themselves as independent. Um, They have harsh critiques for the Democratic Party. It has been under the Obama administration um, where immense promises were made about um, treatment of um, immigrants and undocumented immigrants. And, you know, we've seen the largest number of undocumented people uh, deported ever in history by a, a, a president who is a constitutional lawyer who knows better because due process is being violated at every turn um, in the relationship with these immigrants, undocumented immigrants. So uh, Latinos, Latinas have a tremendous critique. Oh, my God, I can't believe I just said tremendous. That's a bad word. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, they have a serious critique of the Democratic Party. They look at the Republican Party. Donald Trump began his campaign on a platform that said Mexicans are criminals and rapists and drug dealers and bad people, and we have to build a wall. So... Latino voters absolutely understood that they were the target of one presidential candidate. And Lucy, I never thought that I would say this, but, um, you know, I have a lot of, as a journalist, you know, you have a lot of anger towards whatever story issue, you know, that's what motivates us, right, is anger and trying to understand the issue. But I never thought I would say that I have so much ire towards the Presidential Debate Commission you know, kind of like who walks around like, oh, I'm so upset with the Presidential Debate Commission. Well, I am. Um, I think that the fact that there was no Latina or Latina journalist on any of the presidential debates signals again to Latino voters, sadly, that we are not the determinants of the narrative, the political narrative, that someone else is going to make the decision as to whether or not we should be included in the presidential debates. That does not feel good. And um, and the question is, is that going to motivate Latino, Latina voters to come out in bigger numbers? Or are they just going to say, you know what, I'm really upset about this whole thing. I don't feel visible. I don't feel included. I'm going to sit this one out. 
Although I have to say, I don't think that that's going to be the, the big trend. I'm speaking with Maria Hinojosa, host and executive producer of NPR's Latino USA. As we look to the Latino vote uh, in the upcoming election, let's talk to some of the young Latino voters here in Connecticut. In studio with me is Wildeliz Bermudez. You're a city council member of Hartford. Welcome to the show. Yes, thank you so much for having me here. I see you nodding your head a lot as Maria is speaking about, uh, you know, the new voters among the Latino population, the issues that matter to you. What's striking to you about this election season? Yes, so it's a very interesting election for sure. So much at stake here. But, I mean, when Maria, you've been mentioning the immigrant issue, the, the issues that we are concerned about, right? So the Latino core issues are issues just like everyone else has. Um, We are concerned about, of course, education, the economy, jobs, crimes in cities, immigration, of course, being one of them. But in in the perspective of a place like Connecticut and understanding that we do have such a high rate of Puerto Ricans um, among, you know, the highest percent of eligible voters, that's something that is of concern. Uh, And as a Puerto Rican, as someone who came here to this country, my parents came here uh, when I was a very, very young a very small town in Jabucoa, and just for a better life, right? And this was years ago, and and here I am today being raised in Hartford, um, and there are so many people who are coming from the island and a new wave of Puerto Ricans who are settling here, and that's an issue that's also of concern to Latinos here in the New New England area because we are growing. Um, So when we talk about immigration, it's a very mixed issue of not just uh, looking at what's happening across the borders, but also within our own communities, within Mm -hmm. the islands that we come from or or the countries that we come from. Even the Cuban issue can be uh, mixed in there as well. You mentioned you were raised here in Connecticut uh, from your parents from Puerto Rico. Um, How connected is your family to the island? We know about the huge debt crisis and the lack and the slow moving, uh, you know, the the legislation that went through the summer uh, in Congress. Finally, it was passed to try to help the island uh, with its fiscal issues. Very connected to the island because, you know, there are Puerto Rican families who come here and they settle in, and then all of a sudden you have trickles of other members, other relatives, cousins and aunts who, who come as well. But in our case, there's also Puerto Rican families who come uh, to places like Hartford and across the New England area, and they might be the only ones. And so we still have that connection, that direct connection with the island, and that's the case of my family. You know, they, they're from, we live in the place of, uh, in the town of Jabucoa, and all of our family members are there, and we were the only ones who came here to the U.S., but there's this constant uh, transient population between the island and coming back here and then going back there. But definitely what's happening with Promesa is, is something that's directly impacting the Puerto Rican community. And we are having a large number of Puerto Ricans who are arriving to Connecticut and places like Hartford. And the place that tracks that right now, because you know we haven't had a census in some time, if we look at the Board of Ed, the Hartford Board of Ed, the numbers are insane. You know, there's been more than 4,000 families who have arrived in the last year and a half, and these are all eligible voters. And these are young families, and these are young people. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about the voters in Connecticut, that's something that's really top priority. Mm-hmm. In terms of the Latino voters. And before we head to break, we heard uh, Maria saying earlier that, you know, there is a small population, about 13, 17, maybe as high as 23, 25 percent, who are leaning towards Trump in Connecticut among the Puerto Rican population. Which candidate are they leaning towards? 
Wow. So that would be uh, hard for me to to assess exactly how what what that looks like. I haven't seen the, the latest polls on which candidate at the national level uh, Latinos are leaning or favoring, favoring. But um, one of the things that I know for sure is that the Latino population, and especially Latino millennials like myself, um, and like Adrian, who's here today with me, um, we are, you know, we're driven by either the candidates, uh, what they stand for, candidate themselves, or we are driven by issues. And there are issues at the table that are of extreme concern to us right now. And one of them, of course, that comes to mind is the environment. You know, um, the environment is is something that is crucial. And a lot of young people are talking about it. They've done polls and studies in terms of like how concerned are, are Latino voters, um, particularly younger ones, about the the environment. And I just wanted to share a little uh, quick stats here. But you know, 66% of Latinos versus 52% of all Americans believe global warming caused by human activities, and that's. Uh, and if we look at the younger uh, Latinos, they're more likely to attribute global warming to human causes. And so in the role that I play with the Connecticut League of Conservation Voters, uh, we've just launched in a really exciting program called CHISPA, um, and it has to do with that, engaging more young Latinos to learn about the environment. That's a concern to us. Maria, uh, you know, Osa, I'll go back to you. Um, again, you've been reporting on uh, Latinos and many other populations in our country for some time. Um, we hear so much about the economy. We just heard from Will DeLees that, you know, climate change is something that uh, Latinos are thinking about. What's your take? That, that's everything that I've been saying, right? You think Latino voters that the only thing that's going to drive them to the polls is immigration because that's the only narrative that you hear when we when we are talked about on a national scale. Um, so. Latina voters, one of the primary issues that drives them to the polls that they care about is actually reproductive rights. But you, know, you don't necessarily think that when you think of Latino voters. And I, I want to just jump in in terms of the power of the, of the Puerto Rican vote in particular. Um, so we did a lot of reporting about um, what's happening in Florida. And as you know, actually, it's kind of interesting. I've become obsessed like never before with one particular state, and it is the state of Florida, and in very particularly with Latino voters in the state of Florida, and zeroing in to the Puerto Rican voters of Central Florida around the Orlando I-4 corridor. I call these Puerto Rican voters the most powerful Puerto Ricans in the world. Uh, remember, just for clarification, you are born an American citizen if you're born on the island of Puerto Rico. But when you live on the island, you do not have the opportunity to vote for president. So when you leave the island and you come to the mainland, like those 4,000 families that have arrived into Connecticut, um, then you can vote for president. So this massive, and, and they're not immigrants, let's make that clear. Like none of these folks who are leaving Puerto Rico are immigrants. They are migrating from one place to another, but they are not immigrants because Puerto Rico is considered part of the United States. So um, now that they've arrived into central Florida, what are they going to do? We focused on, um, on particularly Puerto Rican evangelical voters. Many think Latino evangelical voter equals Republican voters. Well, you know, Latino evangelicals care about immigration. They care about um, a minimum wage hike. They care about actually bigger government, a more responsive government. They're against the death penalty. That does not necessarily put them immediately into the Republican camp. And given what Trump has said about Latinos and immigrants, 
um, the evangelicals that we spoke to actually are very much against the Donald Trump candidacy. So um, specifically in terms of the Puerto Rican vote, this is fascinating. Where will they put their power and you know, what's going to happen? Let's just say that Puerto Rican voters in Central Florida turn out to be the swing voters that literally swing the state and perhaps the entire election. What will the new president give in return? Not a give in return, but how are they going to respond mm. to this electorate that has turned out? That's the next big question, right? And, of and, course... Uh, Maria, we'll have to take a quick break. We're going to continue this conversation when we get back. Maria Hinojosa, host of NPR's Latina USA. We're looking at the growth of Latina voters since 2012. What are the issues that matter to them this presidential campaign? When we come back from the break, we're going to hear from another Connecticut Latino about what his issues, what matter him to most to him. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. There are 280,000 eligible Hispanic voters in Connecticut. What's their take on this year's presidential election? To help us answer that question, we have two guests in studio. Wildelise Bermudez, a, a Hartford City Council member who also works for a Latino outreach program called uh, CHISPA. Also, Adrian Rodriguez is joining us, a recent graduate from Central Connecticut State University. And Adrian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lucy. You've been listening to Maria and Will DeLees talk about um, issues that matter to Latinos, how the population is changing. Tell us about yourself. Where do you come from and what matters to you? So I actually, um, I'm in the same boat as uh, Will DeLees. I also came here at a very young age with my family. Um, I think some of the most important issues in this election for young Latino voters is the economy and education. Um, We've been, as a recent graduate at Central, We've seen tuition costs hike um, extremely. And so that going forward, and I have a lot of cousins that follow me and thinking about, well, how much is tuition going to cost for them? Um, that's something that is really on the table for me, and we're looking at what are other solutions. Um, aside from that, in the economy as well, there's a lot of Latino voters that they feel there are no opportunities available right now. Uh, there there are no employment opportunities. I've graduated with thousands of other students, and I've seen people graduate from Central in four years and three and a half years, and they're working at a yogurt um, place because they can't find a, a job that for what they studied for. Um, and so because of that, there's actually a lot of Latinos and a lot of young people creating their own jobs and creating their own opportunities. Um, like myself, I've, I've started my own small business creating handmade ties, with a partner with a partner that creates uh, couture dresses um and that's kind of on the side as we continue to build it but it's it's that reality of well if i can't find a job doing this or if i can't find a job doing what i studied then i'm going to be my own boss i'm going to uh do what i want to do but of course that's going to play out in whatever economy we have later on well, we've been focusing the show on the growth uh, among uh, Latinos, the eligible voters. Um, how do we make sure that they come to the polls? What have you been doing in terms of Latino outreach? So there's actually, I've been part of a, um, a program called the Community Voter Program. And so this, um, I'll call it CVP. The CVP, we've been going out to communities where we know repeatedly have low voter turnout and educating um, the residents and the voters and whoever uh, answers at the door saying, hey, what are what issues are important to you? And not just responding with the first question of, are you registered to vote? Because that will quickly shut the door on you. 
and really saying what's important to the people in the community. Um, we've targeted area-specific like Frog Hollow, the Park Street area in Hartford. We've also um, targeted uh, Upper Albany, which is the Albany Avenue area in the north end. And we've been talking to these residents, people that no candidate ever goes and knocks on their door because they're not registered or they never turn out to the polls. Um, and I think that voter education is really what's going to turn this around and making sure that people get out to the polls. Uh, we talked about the Puerto Rican community being able to vote in the presidential election now that they are on the continental United States. However, if they're not informed that they finally can vote in the presidential election, um, they might not turn it out. I want to turn back to Maria Inahosa. Before we go, we've got under two minutes, Maria. But again, you mentioned uh, you, you think that the turnout among Latino voters will be strong. What about this election that will bring them to the polls? Well, I don't want to make any predictions, but um, what we understand right now is that um, there is polling that says that Latino voters are more engaged now than they were four years ago. Um, we have polling that says that la- early voting in Florida in terms of Latinos, um, be- you have 99% more Latinos who have already voted in early voting in Florida than in 2012. So these little these numbers are saying okay. So so we are turning out. Um, the the question is really the narrative going forward, right? How do we as a country understand what has just happened over the last you know two years essentially year and a half? Uh, Latino Latina voters were central in the whole conversation, and yet again in terms of the debate on just this one question of immigration, you know about two and a half minutes talking about that in the final debate. Um, And I love the fact that we are talking about Puerto Rican voters who are born American citizens who are able to vote once they get to the mainland, um, and and immigration, and and immigrant voters like myself. I was born in Mexico and became a a citizen in the late 1980s, or my kids who were born American citizens. So all of this is, we're not going anywhere, right? Even though we have one candidate who is saying we're going to build a wall and we don't want you here necessarily, none of us are going anywhere in terms of the state of Connecticut, we're all going to be there, you know, and I have a home in the state of Connecticut. Um, So we're not going anywhere, but there has been such divisive rhetoric now. How do we move forward? How do we build trust in the state of Connecticut, in our communities, where we maybe now have seen our neighbors put Trump signs on their lawns? And, um, And we, as Latino voters, may be taking this very personally, how do we move forward? So that's the next part of the dialogue. Of course, watching the di- watching the turnout, watching our engagement, and then the next part of the conversation, how do we move forward as a country with the fastest growing group being Latinos and Asian Americans and none of us going anywhere? How do we find the dialogue to create a commonality, commonality of experience that we're all Americans and we're all equal? Maria Inahosa, host and executive producer of NPR's Latino USA. You can hear it Sundays at 6 a.m. and 9 p.m. on WNPR. Thank you so much, Maria. My pleasure. Thank you. Also, thanks to Wildelise Bermudez, a Hartford City Council member, and Adrian Rodriguez, also a Connecticut resident. When we come back from the break, we're going to hear about what a Trump presidency means for the Arab world. Before we get to that, if you appreciate where we live on WNPR, here are two of my colleagues to tell you how to support this radio station. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Debates are a fundamental part of our democracy. This election season, millions of Americans were glued to their televisions to watch the presidential debates. In other parts of the world, debates between political candidates with different opinions are not always embraced. This includes how regular citizens may be treated if they voice their own opinions. 
Belibes Benkreda joins me in studio to talk about his organization that aims to encourage more freedom of expression. He's founder of the Monothera Initiative, the Arab world's largest online and TV debate forum. He's also a 2016 Yale Greenberg World Fellow. Belibes, welcome to where we live. Thank you so much for having me on your program, Lucy. Tell us about the Monothera Initiative. Well... It started in 2011 at the time of the Arab Spring. So we saw these uprisings. People went on to the streets, demanded freedom, democracy, accountability from their leaders. So at this time, I, you know, I was working as a government consultant in Dubai, and I had the idea of you know, creating an online debate forum that really radically lessens the barriers for people to enter the discourse and also you know, to constructively engage around some of the most pressing issues that the region was facing. That didn't exist at the time. So we started the Dubai Debates, which was the first iteration of what is today the Munadra Initiative. We did the Dubai Debates for one year, and then the Munadra Initiative saw the dawn of light uh, in, in 2012. And really the idea is that anybody can take part. Uh, it is based on an online forum. You have 99 seconds to express your view on a certain topic. And then the audience uh, gets the opportunity to vote up or down contributions. So we're really crowdsourcing some of the most uh, neglected voices. Because remember, the very voices that called for change are today the most neglected voices in the public discourse, which is largely dominated by men between the ages of 50 and 80. So that's basically the idea, and the winners go on to take part in a television program. So the Arab Spring, I guess, first started in Tunisia, late 2010. So you're saying um, after that movement started, you thought, well, let's get the voices of the people, the young people that were behind the change. Precisely. Um, so tell me about your upbringing, your connection to this initiative. Well, I I am of Algerian descent. I'm very much bicultural. I was born and raised in Frankfurt, so I am Arab. I am German. Um, you know, I studied international relations, philosophy of law, and then I have a master's degree in Middle East politics. So, you know, I do have a connection with the region, both academically and by upbringing. Um, and, um, you know, and, and the, the theory of change of the organization is really central, you know, because when I was a student in Frankfurt, I studied the public sphere. And that kind of inspired me to look at a way of applying some of these ideas of how a discursive space could look like. What are the ideal conditions for us to engage and deliberate uh, about major issues that concern society? Um, so, so everything you see in the Munadra Initiative is very much derived from that theory of change. I mentioned that in, in the U.S. presidential race, uh, much attention on the presidential debates. But in the Arab world, debates were not common? Until after the Arab Spring? Well, there's, they still aren't. You know, mm-hmm. the, ironically, the, there's a lot of talk and there's a lot of conversations. But that's very different from having a constructive kind of debate forum where contributions are harmonized. There are rules. People agree before the, uh, the beginning of the debate on what those rules are. There is a binding element in the sense that, you know, these debates are competitive. You call a result at the end of them. And that all that is very, very different from more talk. You know, more talk hasn't resulted in more constructive conversation. So that's why it's really important to have uh, fora that actually allow people to deliberate. Let's talk about the voices that are participating in the Monothra Initiative. You mentioned earlier trying to get the young voices, the people who are uh, left out of the debate uh, in the Arab world. Um, traditionally, it's been the men between, like you said, 50 and 80 years old. Um, how long did it take to get buy-in? Did people feel comfortable in these Arab nations participating in this online dialogue? Absolutely. And this, is, this might be surprising to a lot of people, but, but here's the thing. 
The problem is not that people do not want to engage. The problem is that there is a lack of fora to do so. And there are tremendous barriers to entering the discourse. If you're female or young or both, you are very unlikely to find a way to voice your opinion in a constructive fashion. So that's why the mere creation of the forum already tapped into an existing need. And we're seeing this constantly. We get hundreds of participants from the entire Arab world who really actively take part and are waiting to, to voice their opinions. Is there a fear of retaliation, though? Um, you know, I was watching this Al Jazeera segment on uh, the Munathara Initiative's website. Um, the narrator said, quote, a stick is still a favorite tool to punish difference of opinion. And that, quote, prison is still a destination for people with alternate opinions who express them in the public sphere. Well, there is there is reprisal against um, against uh, people who voice opinions that are seen as challenging regime regime narratives. Yes, that is true, but the you know the context is very different from country to country, and um, you know I always say that we as a debate forum kind of have a benefit of the doubt in the sense that debate is something seemingly innocuous. You're presenting opposing views, you're not really advocating for a certain position that kind of shielded us from from a lot of the problems that NGOs face who are, you know, kind of challenging what the regimes are doing. So so really debate allows for uh, fostering that kind of discourse, despite the fact that it is not wanted uh, by the autocratic regimes mm-hmm. in the region. So you started Munathra Initiative, this online debate uh, and TV forum in 2011. Since that time, how many citizens from these Arab nations have you been able to get involved in this project? Well, so the television program has really taken off, and we're very happy about this. Because remember, the premise of the program is quite unique in the sense that you're looking at a media landscape that is dominated by regime-owned television stations. And they try to foster a certain narrative. Now, here you have a civil society-run forum that is editorially completely out of the control of these regimes. So it's completely independent. It's controlled by nobody. And the broadcasters who who are syndication partners agree to broadcast our television debates under the condition that they don't have any editorial say over it. So So this premise really made it quite successful. There's also a path to scale in this very idea because... You know, we have four television partners. There is no reason we shouldn't have 10 or 15 television partners at some stage. So really, uh, this this idea has uh, has, has allowed the Munadra Initiative to thrive. And also, fa- of course, the fact that you can take part online, there's technically no limitation. Again, the online space has been growing. Our world now has over 50% online penetration. So there are tremendous opportunities in engaging through a democratic crowdsourcing process. And how are you seeing that impact in these individual nations? Uh, if these young people feel empowered that they can participate in an online debate um, on the Munathra Initiative, but how is that translating to their own communities? So, so the impact um, happens on a number of levels. So, so first of all, you have the impact on individuals. It changes their lives. A lot of our participants talk about those 99 seconds as the 99 seconds that change their lives for good because suddenly they discover you know, I can be on TV. My opinion matters. Here I am on primetime television voicing my opinion. So a lot of them actually go back to their countries and enter the mainstream, the mainstream uh, uh, media. And they, you know, they write and, and they become commentators. Some of them have television shows. Others have won prizes. And we, we had a participant who was part of President Obama's African Leadership Initiative. There's some really amazing stories of how these youth... Uh, uh, benefited from participating in 
in participation um, at the Munadara Initiative, and also on the policy level. Remember, we're tackling questions that are often not spoken about in the region. So some of our debates have triggered debates after the debates where serious policy questions were raised by parliaments, uh, by lawmakers. Uh, so, so that's also really, really important, you know, to see that we're stimulating conversations beyond our debate. Can you give us an example? Well, I was, I was talking about the example um, of a lady who was uh, of the black minority in Tunisia. This was a very, very interesting uh, debate about minority rights in Tunisia. So it turned out during the debate, and this was in June, that black minorities in Tunisia are being discriminated against in a, in a very, very disconcerting fashion. So th- there's segregation in the South. There are different buses for black Tunisians and white Tunisians. There are birth certificates that mention uh, you know, who the owner of the slave is. And very, very tragic stuff. So this really triggered a national debate in Tunisia, and we saw an anti-discrimination bill that was introduced uh, a few weeks after our debate, you know. But, you know, so, so this is a very specific example of how a debate actually triggered a policy change. But I also want to emphasize that it, this isn't our primary goal, you know, is not to influence the policy debates. We're looking, we're, we're looking at this in the long term. We have to contribute to a healthy, discursive space where people can engage, and only that will actually lead to positive change in the long run. I'm speaking with Belabes Ben-Kreda, who joins me in studio to talk about his organization, the Manothra Initiative, that aims to encourage more freedom of expression. The Manothra Initiative is the Arab world's largest online and TV debate forum. Let's talk about a, a, a question that your uh, debate is posing recently, and that is, um, is a Donald Trump presidency good for the Arab world? How did you come up with that question? Well, here's the thing. On November 8th, Americans are facing a choice, and it's going to be a very different uh, – there, there are two very, very different options. Now, that choice is going to affect the lives of millions and millions of people in the Arab world because a Clinton presidency, as opposed to a Trump presidency, would be very different in its effect on the Arab world. So we really, really wanted to present this topic in order to foster a constructive conversation for people to understand what those two different options mean. Um, and to dive deep into the policy differences of a Secretary Clinton uh, White House as opposed to a Trump White House. So again, uh, through the Manothra Initiative, people are encouraged to send in videos uh, for or against of this question. It's 99 seconds. So well, let's hear a little bit of a video, and then you could tell us what some of the responses have been to this question. السلام عليكم أنا نهاد الدهماني من دولة ليبيا أولي قرار المجلس الذي يرى بأن ترامب هو الأفضل للوطن العربي فنحن أمامنا خياران إما الأولى هيلاري كلينتون التي أوضحت فيما سبق So the first uh, video submission we're hearing is from Nehal Fathi in Libya Tell me what she's saying Well she, she, she's saying that um, a, uh, a Clinton she's basically going back and looking at the Clinton legacy in the Middle East and she's saying that All of her actions have really led to uh, a region in shambles. We now have the rise of uh, the Islamic State. Uh, Democracy promotion has not made people's lives better. She's saying, you know, we just want to be left in peace. Please stop the democracy talk. All we want is our own security. We want to prosper economically, and we want to be safe from ISIS. 
So Neha Fathi, again from Libya. So when uh, uh, Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, uh, there was uh, the uh, intervention in Libya. Um, and then also she's saying that under uh, Clinton presidency, when you saw what happened with the growth of ISIS in Iraq, now she was a U.S. senator at the time, voted uh, in support of the authorization of the award in Iraq. So this woman in Libya is pointing to these two um, specific instances of why a Clinton presidency would not be good for the Arab world? That's right. And then, and this is the broader sentiment. You know, we had uh, over 400 direct participants in this competition, and about 29% of them are in favor of the motion. So 29% of our participants think that Trump would indeed be better for the Arab world. And there are a couple of themes that run through the arguments. And, and the, one, of the main, one of the main arguments is that Secretary Clinton and her engagement instinct you know, the, the, she, she very much comes from a Wilsonian Democrat tradition, the idea of being more engaged, building nations, promoting democracy in the Middle East and North Africa. This is, uh, by, by the people on the pro side, seen as, as very negative because of the results that it, ha- it has led to. The other argument is that Donald Trump's idea of disengaging is very much welcome. And also his very strong rhetoric against ISIS and his... Uh, uh, hope to eliminate the Islamic State once and for all. It resonates really well on the pro side. Let's talk about the side against uh, Donald Trump. Uh, because of a lot in, in this country, there's a lot of attention on what he said about Muslims, this idea of banning all Muslims, um, new Muslims from coming into the country. Let's hear from another uh, participant, uh, Usama Lakdar from Morocco. So his core argument is that the discourse, the kind of speeches that Donald Trump has been giving about the Arab world is very, very much likely to further inflame the problem that is ISIS. Because ISIS is only looking for that kind of rhetoric. It's the us against them. It's the West and its values and its civilization against um, Islam. So um, this, this particular participant really makes this point that once Donald Trump is in power, ISIS is going to be thriving because of that discourse. So this Saturday, there'll be a televised debate based on this question, is Donald Trump better for the Arab world? Um, how many people, again, will be participating in that online debate to air this Saturday? So, so the debate is uh, on Saturday is sort of the culmination of this whole process because you'll have the two winners of the online debate and they will be joined by senior uh, opinion leaders. Mm-hmm. So um, on the pro side, we have an, uh, an Iraqi commentator who was uh, a government advisor previously. He will support the motion and say that Donald Trump is better for the Arab world. On the against side, we have a lady from the Syrian National Council, very interestingly, who is against the Trump presidency and will um, you know, argue very much in favor of, of Clinton being the better choice for the Arab world. And they'll include, they will include the winners for this online debate. They form a team. And that's part, again, this is part of what makes it unique. You know, you don't really hear those voices. But then because you're mixing them with these senior opinion leaders, it really elevates them to a different level. It's not a youth debate forum as such. There would be limited interest in, in seeing people seeing just youth debate. But the moment you pair them with well, very well-known mainstream opinion leaders and they have to form a team, they're on an equal footing, they have equal speaking time, this really makes the, the, the charm of the debates. Now, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but you know, how do Arabic debates differ from what we see here in the U.S. as a traditional debate? Uh, are, are you talking about our debates in particular? or um, um, Just culturally, uh, before the Monothra Initiative launched. Yeah, so there, there are a lot of rants. You know, it's, they, they tend to be you know, uh, not very focused. There tends to be a lot of 
a lack of kind of constructive engagement, a, a lack of uh, a fact bases, you know. So this is this is a problem, and we're trying to bring this breath of fresh air through our model, you know, which is very insistent on uh, checking the facts, on um, contributions not veering off topic, uh, things being harmonized. We have counters. Everything is up to 99 seconds. There's a lot of online in- engagement because this happens live, so we get Twitter feedback, we get uh, Facebook feedback. Um, so, so you know, I think I think this kind of uh, debate is really very much needed, especially at the moment in the Arab world. I'm impressed you can keep people under 99 seconds. Yeah, but you have to, and and a lot of it is prepping them, right? So we have editorial meetings before the show, and and people are, and they also watch the previous debate, so they're very very well aware that this isn't their standard debate where they can go on and rant. Uh, you know, so so we, we we really keep them on on track. And what do you hope uh, people in the Munathra community and around the world will take away from this uh, televised debate on Saturday? It would be great if they could understand the, the real difference, you know, because on the surface, uh, a lot of the negative rhetoric against Muslims uh, by Donald Trump has reached broad parts of the Arab population, and that's very disconcerting. But on the other hand, we want them to understand that there are two fundamentally different ideologies that would be represented in the White House. If it's a Clinton White House, it would be a a uh, pro-engagement, pro-nation-building, interventionist. Some people would say hawkish because there is more of an instinct to use U.S. military force if need be. And on the other hand, you have a a Trump ideology, uh, which, as far as we can understand, would be more of an isolationist Uh, take on the Middle East and North Africa, let them sort out their problems, let the Russians deal with ISIS in Syria. Uh, It's a very, very different kind of approach. And we really want people to understand that policy difference. I've been speaking to Belabes Ben-Kreda, a 2016 Yale Greenberg World Fellow and founder of the Munathra Initiative, the Arab world's largest online and TV debate forum. If our listeners want to see this debate, where should they go this weekend? You can go to our Facebook page. It's M-U-N-A-T-H-A-R-A. It's going to be in Arabic, Saturday, uh, 5 GMT. Uh, we're also organizing, once the debate is subtitled, we're going to be organizing a screening at Yale University uh, with the subtitles. So that's going to be a few days later, and we'll probably announce it there as well. Great, and we'll hope to link to our website to that uh, subtitled event for our listeners. Great. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you in. so very much, Lucy. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Jeff Tyson. Our technical producer is Kyan Wolf. WNPR's executive producer is Katie Talarski. Check out WNPR.org slash where we live for more about the show. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Thanks for listening.